0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We are in Daniel chapter three. If you got your Bibles, if you turn there, we are actually, uh, as Chris was talking about, the fifth anniversary or fifth birthday celebration. Uh, This is actually a series that I preached before we had launched our church back in our kind of core group days. And we were just starting. And really the intent of that was, we really felt like it was something that was, 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 was con- would connect with kind of where our culture is, with why we needed a new church, with why our city needed a church, with why God needed to work within our world in, uh, in some unique ways. And so as, as we've kind of fast forwarded, we wanted to revisit that as we came up to our fifth birthday. And to be honest, I am more convinced preaching through it this time than I was last time. Someone asked me, they said, has your vision or has your convictions changed Um, about where the church is five years in from where you were. And to be honest, it's just solidified even more. I look at our world, I look at where we are and I'm even more convinced of the reality of these chapters and the importance of them and the relevance of them for us. And so we're gonna dig in today. And as we do, man, I did a bunch of reading this week and one of the things I I was reading about was in China, there's now what is called a social credit system. Have you heard about this thing? I honestly, it sounded so far out there that I got a little nervous about maybe this is fake news and I'm buying into something. So I got on Snopes and looked it up. I looked at some other sites and I found it on differing viewpoints from different continents. And I'm convinced that this is probably a a real thing. It just sounds like it's something out of a George Orwell book or out of a sci-fi movie. So it's kind of strange. But here's what China's social credit system is. It really is a scenario in which they've got over 200 million surveillance cameras that use facial recognition technology and they're enforcing this nationwide. And by 2020, they're expecting to have uh, 626 million surveillance cameras installed. And here's the trick. They're going to rate you based on your performance of life on a daily basis. Well-behaved people will be rewarded with nice perks. So if you behave well, you may get on a dating website and find yourself positioned for a better mate. Uh, You may be able to find uh, yourself on a better flight. Your kids will have access to better schools. You may even be allowed to keep a pet if you behave really well. Now, on the negative side, if under the surveillance of the state and the local governments, you may uh, you actually do something wrong, such as provocation on a flight, taking a, sneaking a lighter through airport security, don't do that. Uh, if you uh, are smoking a high-speed train or uh, commit tax evasions or forget to pay a fine, you're going to be put on the naughty list. And when you get put on the naughty list, you're actually going to lose uh, privileges. So if you do things like get caught jaywalking or don't pay a court bill or play music too loud on the train, kids, don't do that. Uh, you'll get yourself on the naughty list, and when that happens, um, different. There's different consequences. Some your kids may be banned from the schools they want to go to. You may be ineligible for better employment. You may not be able to stay in the nice hotels, and your pets could be taken away from you. Now. This isn't completely worked out. They're still trying to work out exactly how this is going to function within the reality of their society. But, you know, if you do things like actually challenge the government, uh, they're saying that you could be uh, prevented from buying property or from taking out a loan. In fact, a negative, um, a a truly negative rating may get you publicly shamed. And so if you get to a low enough social credit score, you may be, subject to public shaming at the hands of the state. Now that's pretty extreme, right? It's crazy stuff. When you think about uh, that kind of thing going on in the world, it's pretty, pretty shocking to think about how that might work and yet technology is allowing that to be a possibility within our world. Now, truth be told, cultural pressure to get people to conform to societal norms isn't really new, is it? Although technology is enabling this, this isn't a new concept completely. And as you think about um, this, this week I was reading a bunch of articles and uh, just thinking about something, I don't have time to go through all these today, but I was reading some articles and just thinking about the ways in which this happens in our culture. Maybe it's more generalized and not quite as specific as the case as I was telling you about in the social credit system, but there's also public shaming and public coercion and public manipulation to get us to think a certain way, isn't there? I was looking at some articles and thinking about, uh, how people cheer different court cases when they're handed down and the ways in which those things are, are broadcast through the news streams. I was reading another article, was talking about how uh, sexuality would be much better off if we could experience shame-free sexuality and find a way to alleviate ourselves from any guilt and just enjoy whatever it is that we desire to do. Uh, another article I read was, was shaming a Christian who's in public limelight because they, uh, they are self-proclaimed Christian and they actually believed what Christianity taught, which is really weird, right? And so they now are being, uh, now they're saying they ought to be kind of ostracized and they're being called a bigot because they hold to views of sexuality that Christians have always held to and that the Christian Bible teaches. And so they've been ostracized. Another article I was reading in the New York Times is called Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. And and this is a an opinion piece, and really, it's a lady that just says, "I was scarred by my religious upbringing, and because of that, I, my husband and I, have freed ourselves from the bondages of this entire idea of sin, and we're raising our kids purposely without the concept of sin." And she goes on to say, in the article, "I believe that this life is the only life we'll know. This planet." our only existence. And so that frames her, her belief, her personal belief frames the way in which she views the world. She goes on to say, I'm raising my two daughters according to my moral code. To me, the greatest sin of all is failing to be an engaged citizen of the world. So it's not as though she has no morality. It's not as though she has no criteria. It's just that all of that is determined by me. I believe that this is the only planet, my moral code. To me, this is the most important thing. And it's determined very much by self rather than truth that comes outside, from outside of us. And there are all kinds of cultural pressures that we all experience every day. And you guys walk into these, you see them on, on the broadcast, you hear them on the radio, you see them on your, uh, on your social media streams, and we just feel the pressures of all these things coming down upon us. Uh, one guy, Derek uh, Rishmavi, said it this way. Um, he says, we live in a time of take no prisoners, tribal combat where our enemies are not simply wrong, but evil and need to be destroyed. Our social media mobs are not satisfied with highlighting problems, but rush to play judge, jury, and social executioner in the matter of hours. Indeed, we are encouraged to achieve our own self-vindication through the public prosecution of our enemy's sins. See, there's a cultural zeitgeist that's attempting to bring people into compliance with the influencers of society. This is the way the world's always been, that, that there is a cultural norm that becomes established and within that norm, there's pressure put down on others in order to get everyone to comply to that norm. What's shifted for us is that we are used to being in a position of strength and now oftentimes we're finding ourselves in a position of weakness in those conversations. But every society in history has exerted social pressure to create unified views and in a unified approach to life. And that's what we see in Daniel three. So if you've got your Bibles, would you look with me at Daniel chapter three? And we're gonna see how this played out in the days of Babylon. You may remember that Daniel and his friends in Babylon were exiles. They were outsiders. They had entered into a state-sponsored re-education program in which they were being taught to embrace all things Babylon. They were taught to embrace the food and the culture and the music and the literature and the beliefs and the ways of Babylon. And through a remarkable set of events, um, that, that, that took place, these four young men, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had become kind of up and coming emerging stars within the government of Babylon and the king's company. And yet the efforts of Babylon were continually pressing upon them to kind of lose their spiritual heritage and indoctrinate them in the ways of the land. And we've seen them engage in this new, this new place. We've seen them engage with grace and wisdom but we still begin here to see the tensions that they're living within. And here's the question that I think this asks us, is where do you draw the line? See what we've seen is the grace and the wisdom that they've been kind, they've been respectful, they've bent, they've been flexible, they've worked within the system of Babylon, but there comes a certain point where in every true story in every true life, you have to say, this is the line over which I will not cross. There comes a time and a place where we have to take a stand for that which is beautiful and good. And as we seek to engage our world for good, there are times where we have to live by conviction and we have to, uh, we have to stand up. How are we gonna respond when we're forced, when our world forces us to make a choice? Well, let's look at Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials in the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of, kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have established a decree that every man who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the Babylon, province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. So these men were brought before the king. you look at this story and you think about the scenario, it's like a scene out of an epic movie. It kind of unfolds in front of us and you kind of see what, what is happening here. And, Nebuchadnezzar, it's interesting. In chapter two, you may remember in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he was tormented and he couldn't sleep and had this agonizing thing that was going on. And the dream was that a statue had been set up and Daniel was the only one of all of his wise men that were able to come and interpret the dream. Now, what was the the meaning of the dream that Daniel made known to Nebuchadnezzar? It was that you rule at at the wish of God and the whim of God, and you do not hold the power of your kingdom in your own hands, but ultimately God allows you to serve. And so you better be humble because God is one day gonna come and eradicate all kingdoms and set up a kingdom that lasts forever. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledged Daniel's, that Daniel knew his dream, that Daniel's interpretation was right. In fact, he praised God, he praised Daniel's God and said, Daniel, because you knew my dream, your God must be the God of gods and the king of kings. Now, here's the question. What happens in Daniel three? First thing you see is Nebuchadnezzar's building a, a stupid idol and throne or a statue. Right after in Daniel 2, he was said, man, if you do this, you're gonna be in trouble. He turns around and does it. So had Nebuchadnezzar really changed anything whenever he told Daniel, your God must be the true God? No, not at all. What you see is he had seemingly had kind of on a surface level, level embraced this idea that Daniel's God had some power, but he had not really surrendered his life to this God. Nebuchadnezzar had been impressed by, the, by Daniel's God, but never enough that he wanted to really follow him, or they wanted to truly trust so what we see here is this kind of incredible human ability we have to, on the surface, seem to embrace something, but never have it penetrate our hearts. Never have it really put, get roots deep in our soul. And so Nebuchadnezzar even had publicly praised God, but he won't, he won't bow his heart to him. and uh, Puritan Jonathan, John Owen described this this way he said it's like someone who uh, finds himself on a journey and in the midst of this journey a great storm comes and lightning crashes and thunder rages and as they as they enter the storm they run underneath and overhead uh, looking for shelter or run into a home looking for shelter but as soon as the storm passes they come back out from under the shelter and they move right along all, all along on their journey in the same direction they were going It doesn't cause them to stop and turn around. They just seek a momentary shelter before continuing on the way that their heart has already intended for them or desired to go. So there's no real alteration, no real course correction, no real change of their life. And lots of people know about Jesus. Lots of people will kind of tip their hat to Jesus. Lots of people will respect Jesus on a general level. It's a different thing to allow Jesus to capture your heart and take up residence there and take over. And so uh, what we see here is that when you think of the Chaldeans in verse, uh, when you get to verse eight, these Chaldeans are going to accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you notice that uh, uh, they've got some bitterness and they've got some anger built up. Now, remember when Daniel interpreted the king's dream? Who were the first people that the king asked to interpret the dream? He made it known to all of his wise men, to the Chaldeans, and to the, 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 the counselors within his court. These were the Chaldeans who had been unable to interpret the dream. And yet Daniel and his friends, had, Daniel had been able to interpret the dream. And because of that, uh, Daniel interceded for them and Nebuchadnezzar put them in greater positions of power. So Chaldeans lowered in importance, Jews elevated in importance. Think the Chaldeans were a little frustrated? What you see is they were probably embarrassed by what had happened. Uh, they likely were now underneath the rule of these Jews. And so these were probably guys that had been over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the tables got turned and now all of a sudden they're underneath them answering to them and, and filling out job descriptions for them. And it's, it's obvious that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here were not really looking to cause a scene, right? Because when you run through the, the scene and the description of everything that's happened, you don't see any kind of, uh, any kind of disruption that's taken place by these three guys. But you see... Them quietly in the background, the Chaldeans call them out. Nebuchadnezzar has to go and find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, "Have them brought to me." Now I think that's important because as you think about what we see here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are—they're going to be defiant of the king's order. They're gonna—they're gonna stage a resistance, but they're still respectful. You notice when that they're not causing a scene, but when King Nebuchadnezzar calls him, they address him properly and say, "O King and "O Nebuchadnezzar. And so they're still being respectful of him. It's interesting. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, people of faith do not have a psychological need to make a big deal out of their acts of heroism. They do not need to always be drawing attention to the fact they are different from others. They're content simply to be faithful. They're going to be faithful to their God and they're going to do what is right. But notice the Chaldeans, they're more than happy to make, to, to make a scene. When, uh, notice the tone of their language. In verse 12, it says, There are certain Jews whom you appointed, Nebuchadnezzar, over the affairs of Babylon, meaning your name's at stake here. Uh, and he goes on and says, These men, O king, they pay no attention to whom? To you. They're ignoring you. And they're not bowing or serving the guys that you set up. It's whom you appointed. They're not acknowledging you. They're ignoring you. They're not worshiping your gods. They're they're really playing off of his ego. They're they're playing off of his pride. And he takes the bait completely. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, comes to them. And as he's called them to him, you get to kind of the, the key kind of crux of the scene in verse 14. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or, the, or worship the golden image that I have set up? Is it true? Is it true that you won't bow down? This is the kind of the significant part of this, of this passage. You notice that as Nebuchadnezzar is coming to them, he, he's not bothered that they are worshiping their God. He's saying, I just want you to add my God to your mix. He's not bothered that, uh, that, that they're worshiping another God. He just is bothered that they will only worship their God. See, this is a great distinction that you see in a pluralistic culture like Babylon and also like ours. The, the problem isn't that you worship something else. The problem is that you worship only one true God and you claim, to cl- you claim the exclusivity of your faith. That's the thing that begins to rub them the wrong way is that everyone else is willing to, to bow down to this image and they're probably keeping their other gods too, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we will bow to only one God, we refuse. The Christians are not offensive because they worship Christ. Christians are offensive to others because they worship Christ alone and refuse to worship anyone else. That's why the king asked, will you, is it true that you will not bow down to any other gods? See, this becomes even more obvious if you look at verse 28. If you go all the way to verse 28, kind of giving away the end of the story, but you see what, what was really bothering him. Nebuchadnezzar answered, and this is after God's rescued him and everything else, so you may know the end of the story now, but look at what Nebuchadnezzar said because I think it's important. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trained in, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather Then serve and worship any God except their own God. See, what what Nebuchadnezzar recognizes is here are three men. who will not bow to anyone, but the one God they claim to be the true God. They refuse to kneel in honor of anyone else. It's remarkable that they do, what's remarkable about this whole scene is that they are so loyal to the one true God and that they refuse to, to kneel to any other. Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher, uh, actually titled his sermon on this text, Is It True? And he spent the whole time just asking the question Is it true that you won't bow? Is it true that you won't kneel to any other? Is it true that you will, that you will worship only one God and that you will not acknowledge any other? And I think that really gets to the important question that we've got to wrestle with as well. Is it, I think it asks of us Is it true of us that our loyalty lies with the one true God? And nowhere else? Does he have all of our hearts and all of our affections? Will we stand when the faith is tested? You see, the the Babylonian world was a pluralistic world, which meant there were many views and many religions and many gods and many ideas of God. And their, their concept, the one thing that permeated all of it was there was a view of God that said the divine being or the gods are there to help you through your struggles and help you find a place of happiness and comfort. And so you could embrace any God and you could go to different places, you could go to different countries, you go to different regions and they may have a different regional God and you may grab hold of that God because you think it helps you through the current storm of your life in order for you to find success and comfort. And this was kind of pervasive through that that whole area that they would take hold of God's in different times and places in order to get through. But basically the job description of the divine was to help you out of tough times and into better times. And so that was why they would worship and what they would do. But here's what you see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see something different. You see three guys who are willing to worship a God beyond their comfort, beyond their security. guys, uh, Guys that are willing to trust him no matter what. Guys that are willing to follow him wherever he leads. They will worship him even if they are thrown into the fire and their bodies are destroyed. That's remarkable. And that got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And this is heroic stuff. This is the, this, the stories you kind of you, you grab hold of in, in the scriptures and you lean into. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. These are the ones that you can put the Braveheart soundtrack on in the background and kind of lean in and get excited about it. They stir your heart. But you know, it's verse, and I think it's important for us to, to look at these scenarios and say, man, do these things, is our heart stirred in the same way? Are we excited about these things as well? Is it, is it true, is what is true of them true of us? Verse 15, I think you get a second question Nebuchadnezzar asks, and here's the thing. The second question is very much related to the first and really tells you why you can answer the first in the affirmative. Verse 15, he says, "'Who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands?' Nebuchadnezzar asked these three. Meaning, I'm about to throw you in the fire. Who's the God that gives you such confidence?' that you can be delivered out of my hands? That's the real question we have to answer in the end. If we're gonna be true to God, it's not gonna be because of our confidence in our own strength. It's gotta be because of our confidence in the strength of our God. And that's what you see in these three. Um, verse, let's look at the courageous response that they have. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, I and mean, we have no need to answer you. They're not being rude or dismissive. They address him with respect, but they're also not going to bow. They are going to resist this call to worship, but they're, not, uh, but they're still going to continue to be kind in the middle of it. And they're not going to kneel or yield. You notice what, where they quietly stood the ground. It says, our God is able, meaning our God's strong enough. Our God's powerful. And our God will, meaning our God is good. Our God desires to do this. And so our God's able to deliver us and our God will deliver us. I Meaning, he's powerful and he's good. When you think about the, the questions that we kind of ask in theological terms, there's one called the theodicy or the problem of evil. And it really just asks that whenever you're facing a difficult trial, when you're facing a hard time, the questions that come are, is your God not strong enough to help? Or is your God not good enough to help? And then those are the kind of one of the great dilemmas and questions that we, that we oftentimes ask in difficulties. And they are not doubting God in this. They just said, our God's able, no worries. Our, God, our God's willing, no worries. But then they say something else that's interesting. They say, but if not, we still will not bow to another. Our allegiance and our loyalty lies only with him. It's interesting, they're not doubting God. They don't question his strength, there's goodness. And yet when they come to this, uh, but they feel the need to ask this or to make the statement, but, why, but if not, why is it they add this second statement? I think the reason is because, not because they are doubting God, but because they doubt themselves because they recognize that maybe I don't, maybe we don't see everything that God is doing. Maybe we don't understand everything God is doing in the world. And, and so, so often I think this is a good thing for us to know. What they know is that God knows more than they do. And he may have some other reason or plan which he is working even in their midst that things may not work out in the moment the way they think they will, but they're still gonna trust him no matter what. I think that's an important corrective for us. So oftentimes what we do when we encounter difficult times, And it's easy for us to say, man, I am sure of what ought to happen here, but I doubt my God. And what they say is, man, I have confidence in my God, but I'm not certain about my own view of everything that I'm seeing it just right. And so I'm gonna hold loosely my perspective. I'm gonna hold tightly to my worship and my loyalty, my faithfulness to my God. They'd settled in the hearts where their loyalty was placed and they will not bow down. Now, how's Nebuchadnezzar going to respond? Verse 19. Um, the story keeps unfolding. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And here you see the king's, uh, the king has set up this image in his own glory and this monument to his his own majesty and his own goodness, and one commentator said, that what you see here is the, the effect of a world that's built around the majesty of man that ultimately becomes self-destructive. In the, the, his rage and them for not bowing down to the image he set up, he cranks up the heat even more. And his own men, the men that represent him, his mighty men are actually consumed and burned up. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the flames. And the king's order was urgent and he throws them down. Now let's watch what happens next. Verses 23 and 24. These men fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to him, true, O king. Understatement, right? He answered and said to them, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And I love the importance of this passage and all that it teaches. It's an amazing scene. In fact, it's a fulfillment of God's promises to them that God will be with them in their trials. Isaiah 43 verse two says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And though through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. See, in the midst of the fire, these three were thrown in bound. And yet when Nebuchadnezzar looks and he says, but there's four and they're not bound and they're walking around as though having a conversation in the midst of the flames that consumed my men. And he's taken aback by this and wonders what is going on. Now we don't know explicitly who this fourth one is, but you notice his description. He's like a son of the gods. Um, I think this was the pre-incarnate Christ. This was Jesus there in the fire with these men, protecting them from the fire in that time. In the Old Testament, you see this, this theme that really runs from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, where at critical moments in the juncture of the nation of Israel, there's a character that shows up that's called the angel of the Lord. And I think it's a, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus that comes and leads his people. Although uh, at the very least, it's someone who always is, is recognized as divine and one who's sent from, from God as God's representative, as his presence amongst his people at critical moments. You see this in Genesis. Genesis, Abraham's at a critical juncture in his life. He's dealing with the devastation of, uh, of being childless and not having um, any kind of heirs, And he sits down and has a meal with the angel of the Lord who tells him, you will be a father of a great nation and you will have descendants even in your old age. Later, Abraham is set up and he's going to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And just before he sacrifices his beloved son, there is an angel that appears that stops the knife kind of midstream and says, stop. And it's the angel of the Lord that appears there with, uh, with Abraham and keeps it, and holds his hand back. When Jacob is at a low point and wrestling and unable to sleep, he has a vision and sees a ladder ascending into heaven and there's one at the top of that ladder, but then that one appears to him and it says that Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord and he demands a blessing and this angel gives him a blessing and he has confidence that God's hand is on him and going to continue to be faithful to him. Moses When the Israelites are in Egypt and they're held captive and God delivers them out of that, who is it that shows up to to lead Moses? It's the angel of the Lord that appears as fire by night and a cloud by day that guides them to the promised land. Over and over and over in the scriptures, you see this one Jesus, the the representative of God, who's with his people at critical moments and here for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, they're thrown in. And yet a fourth appears, And it says, is there not a fourth one there who looks like the son of the gods? And why are they just walking around unbound as though in conversation? Friends, God loves to show up when his people need him. God is always watching. He's always aware. He's always willing to stand at your side in the midst of your trials. Why don't we see this angel of the Lord show up after the New Testament, I mean, after the Old Testament, when we get to the New Testament? Because in the gospels, you're the birth of a Savior, a God-man, one who is divine, who becomes human, God with us in the flesh. We no longer have need of an appearance because he has appeared forevermore as one of us. Friends, what, Jesus, or what this passage, I think, tells us is, uh, is something we all need to hear. God's saying, you stand and I will be there. you faithful to me. I will, I will be faithful to you. You stay true to me and I will rescue you. You're loyal to me and I will deliver you through the fires of this world. And elsewhere in scripture, we see that even when our loyalty founders, he will not turn his back on us for we are his. And he is constant in his care for us and constant in his attention for us. So even if the flames of this world burn your life, he will deliver you home. And he will care for you and watch over you in all things. You know, it's interesting, even when you look at the New Testament, someone like Stephen, Stephen uh, ends up proclaiming Christ's faithfulness in the, in, in the faces of enemies. And you see this kind of, uh, this attack that happens on Stephen, and he's stoned. And yet, who is it at the end of his life, even though God doesn't deliver him from that event? What you see is that Stephen, as, he, as his life begins to ebb out of him, he looks up, and who is it that greets him? He sees Jesus, and Jesus is there waiting on him with arms extended, saying, come home to me. And so even in those moments where maybe the fire is able to consume God's followers, he still delivers them and promises to take them home. Friends, I think this is important stuff for us to recognize, important stuff for us to to understand. We can't control the crazy Nebuchadnezzars in this world. We can't control those who are like him, but we can count on God's faithfulness in all times. You know, it's interesting in Hebrews 11, there's a passage that speaks some to this that, because I think sometimes we look at this and we say, yeah, but what if God doesn't show up in the fires? Like what if the but if not happens as though um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego talked about? Look at Hebrews 11 and it says this, these, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, For people who speak thus must make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would not have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." See, God is going to prepare for them a better place. And so they can walk into the fires because they know that God will be there with them. He will stand by their side in the midst of the trials in which they face. But if not, he's still gonna deliver them home. He's gonna deliver them to a better place, to a better home. They knew, man, I'm an exile here in Babylon. I'm an exile under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, but my king, my Lord has a kingdom that's greater than this and he will deliver me home. And so they could step into the fire Saying, my God is able, my God is willing, but if not, I still will not bend because my hope is in him. This world is not my home. My hope, my home is elsewhere. Continuing in Hebrews 11. He gets to the end of this passage in Hebrews 11, oftentimes called the hall of faith, just recounts the ways in which God has worked throughout his people, throughout human history and unfolds kind of from the beginning of the Bible till the end of the Bible, the way in which God has shown up over and over and over in the faithfulness of his people and, in, and even in their unfaithfulness to care for them. And he gets to the end and, and the writer of Hebrews feels a little bit like I do, like, man, I don't even know what else to say because this is so amazing. He says, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets and those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of of fire. Which I think is going back to this exact passage. He talks about the power or or ability to shut the mouths of lions. That's Daniel. When he talks about quenching the fire, that's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." wandering about in, des- in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And yet all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And God is filling out the sufferings of his people until the day when he comes to take us home. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that moment, God stood with them in the fire and delivered them out. It's amazing. It says when they delivered out, they didn't even have the smell of the flames upon them. Meaning God was able to deliver them without any kind of taint or hindrance whatsoever. It's an amazing thing that you see here. Friends, in the trials of life, our confidence and our peace has to come from God. It can't come from our own strength. We're not allowed to, uh, we're, we're not capable of delivering ourselves. Now, here's something to think about. Uh, never actually heard, thought about this until this week. What would it be like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go back to work that week? Like they didn't have the DSM-4 and PTSD diagnoses back then, but I think Shadrach probably qualified. Like your boss literally threw you into a fire to burn you to death and then gave you a promotion and said, hey, I'll see you Monday. Like that, that's, gonna, that's gonna sort of take you aback and you think about this, but in the end, these faithful men, what we see in this, in this text is these faithful men are exalted and their God is exalted. Give me a verse 28. Verse 28, it says this. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather uh, rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, language that speaks anything against this God, shall be torn limb from limb and their houses shall be in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Because of their action, they are advanced in the ranks of Babylon and God is advanced in the minds of Babylon. Friends, what helps us live with conviction in times of trial? Come on, we've got to keep the presence of God more in our more in our focus than the pressures of the world. We've got to find a way to keep the presence of God nearer to us than the presence of the cultural zeitgeist we find ourselves in. Friends, I love the way Nebuchadnezzar himself says it. No other God can deliver like this. So, friends, as you walk through life, and here's my encouragement to you, and I mix some metaphors a little bit here, but let your heart be tethered to Jesus. Let your anchor be sunk in the sea of the triune God. No matter what winds blow and waves come your way, he's your only hope and he is trustworthy and true and he will carry you through any storm. And we know this because, uh, not just because Christ saves Shadrach and Meshach, Meshach and Abednego from the fire of Nebuchadnezzar, but we know this because Jesus saves us, saves you and me from the fires of hell. they're, They're greater fires than even those of Nebuchadnezzar that consume, and yet God intervenes not just for them, he intervenes for us as well. The cross of Christ tells us that God is not just here to give us happiness in this world, but that the true God has given his life for our life, that he has substituted himself, that a divine being has died for you, has stood in the fires with you, has taken the heat for you. This is what we call grace, and you know, it's more, what's more important as you think about this and why, why, why I say it's grace is what's most important is not that you've been faithful to God, but that God's been faithful to you. That ultimately our confidence and our strength is not in our goodness, but it's in the goodness and the strength of our God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into a fire, but Jesus entered of his own accord. See, they were thrown in. Jesus showed up of his own desire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could, have, would have, could not have withstood the fire, but Jesus shielded them from the flames. And maybe you're here today and you don't personally know God. And my encouragement to you would be that you need to know a God like this. Today, your faith may you need to know that God, a God who enters the fire for you and with you, that stands with you in the midst of the struggles, because you're going to face the trials of life, and you can choose to face them on your own, or you can choose to face them with God at your side. And for those who have a personal faith, I think it's good to remember First Peter chapter 4 tells us this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, you, uh, you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, the best response to trials is not to look to yourself, but it's to look to God who rests upon you, who is with you, who stands by your side, and you can trust him in all things. Um, Nebuchadnezzar himself said, there is no other God who can rescue in this way. And I don't know if he really grasped it at that moment, but he was right. There is no other God who can rescue in this way. So when you feel like an outsider, when you feel like an exile, when you feel like you're under trial, like a refugee without a home, our God comes to you and makes a home with you and says, I I will enter into your life beside you. Friends, this is our faith. Jesus in the fire with us. Jesus on the cross for us. Jesus returning to take us home. Let me pray for us. Father, you promise that those who look to you are radiant and our faces shall never be ashamed. Father, in the midst of all the pressures of life, might we know your presence might we seek your presence, might we trust that you are able, that you are good, that even in moments where things feel uncertain, Father, that you allow us to trust you wholeheartedly, that you will walk us through the trials in, in front of us, That you have, um, that you have sent your son to be on the cross for us, that you will send him again to return and take us to a better country that's forevermore where there are no more trials. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.